Welcome back to the WCCP podcast. My name is Carla Davis, and I'm part of the team at the Whole Community Child Protection Project. The Whole Community Child Protection Project brings the bed community together to educate and empower one another to prevent child sexual abuse. Child sexual abuse and exploitation is a topic that is far too often overlooked. It's uncomfortable to talk about, it's difficult to confront, but it is an ever-present epidemic. And unfortunately, communities of color and vulnerable communities like bed are disproportionately impacted. WCCP was created in partnership between Darkness to Light and Childhood USA, and the project aims to create a network of trained community leaders throughout bed dedicated to keeping our children safe. We believe that together as neighbors, we can provide our children with the safe and happy childhoods they deserve. We know child sexual abuse is a difficult topic that can stir up different things for different people. So if you need to talk to someone or need help, please call 866-F-O-R-L-I-G-H-T or text L-I-G-H-T to 741-741 for free 24-7 confidential services from trained crisis counselors. On today's episode, we are joined by Catherine Torres. Catherine is the Director of Clinical and Forensic Services at the Jane Barker Brooklyn Child Advocacy Center. Catherine has experience working with vulnerable populations and has been providing advocacy and support to children and their families for the past three years at Safe Horizon. As a nationally certified and New York State licensed therapist, she provides trauma-focused care in both English and Spanish. Catherine is a proud bed resident invested in the well-being of the community. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Carla. Thank you for having me. So really excited to talk to you today. One, because you obviously have a really impressive background and are deeply immersed in child protection, but two, because you're a fellow bed resident. So very excited for all of your insight. Thank you. Thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to come and join and just talk about something that I know is very important in our community. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So you're one of the directors of the Brooklyn Child Advocacy Center, and I want to kick things off by talking about child advocacy centers, or CACs as they're often called. There are over 800 CACs across the country, and for many people listening, though, this might be their first time hearing of a CAC. So can you share a little bit about their function and what they what they do? Yeah, of course. Um, so just like you mentioned, a lot of people do not know what CACs are unless they've come into contact with one. Um, but I can speak a little bit about the ones that are here in New York State in just the five boroughs. So Safe Horizon actually is the one that runs the CACs in all the five boroughs here in New York. Um, and Safe Horizon is the nation's largest victim service agency, providing services to survivors of child abuse, homeless youth, domestic violence survivors, and also legal services. Um, we have a hotline that's a 24-hour hotline that people can reach and just kind of connect them to wherever you know services they need or just any assistance that we can provide. And just kind of running along those same lines, Brooklyn CAC is located in downtown Brooklyn. And so essentially the child advocacy centers were created to streamline the process for victims of child abuse after a report has been made. Um, and they provide comprehensive wraparound care for children who have been abused and their families. Um, on, at the CAC, we have a multidisciplinary team of professionals that coordinate the efforts in the same place, and that's the, one of the biggest parts that we're all co-located, um, in order to reduce the number of times the child has to retell the details of their abuse. Um, typically, investigations get referred if they've been referred to the 
like child abuse hotline, the state's child abuse hotline, or directly to law enforcement. And then that's when the children or the families are then brought to the CAC where basically services are initiated. Perfect. And yeah, the, having a centralized place for the child to disclose and receive those that support and those resources completely changes the game and makes what is already a, a traumatic experience just a little bit more manageable because without those CACs, many children have to tell their story over and over and over again, like you mentioned, between going to police officers, to lawyers, to investigators, judges, etc. And this kind of unnecessarily further compounds the trauma. And so you mentioned that there are some wraparound services that CACs provide. I know that different CACs have different programming, but can you speak to what some of those wraparound services are and why they are important for a holistic approach to CSEA response? Absolutely. Um, so the main thing that I guess CACs are known for is the forensic interview process that happens. Um, and that's where basically the child is interviewed by a a child interview specialist, so somebody specifically trained in interviewing children, and it's a legally sound process, and it's child-led, um, so that's something also that people aren't really aware of, um, so that is also conducted by a neutral party, so they don't want necessarily law enforcement or child just talking directly to the detective or directly to maybe child protection. They're talking to somebody that is trained specifically for this. Um, secondarily, there's also medical services. So we have child abuse pediatricians and nurse practitioners that are specialized in evaluations for specifically about child abuse. So physical abuse or sexual abuse. Um, there's also mental health services that are offered at the CAC. Um, and the mental health services are short-term trauma-focused therapy for the children and their families. So we just ensure that you know, not only are they receiving an interview, they're receiving also access to medical care and also mental health services. Lastly, we also offer victim advocacy and support. So let's say that there is an investigation that leads to a prosecution. Um, we help the children prepare for providing their testimony um, if necessary, and also just what that process looks like. A lot of people are not involved in the child welfare system or the child protection system or legal system. So we provide them that information so that way they're able to just know what to expect. And that also reduces the likelihood of them experiencing severe trauma later on. Um, the most important thing I think as well is that everyone on the team ha kind of has their purpose and like their goal, but ultimately they want the child to be at the forefront and kind of keep them in mind that we don't want to re-traumatize them. So even though there's all these kind of wheels turning in different directions, we're all heading towards the same place, which is ensuring that this child is okay and that they don't continue to be re-victimized. And that's so important because, you know, when we think about cases of child abuse or child sexual abuse more specifically, I think we focus in on getting to that prosecution. And, and obviously, making sure that there is accountability for the offenders is important, but it's equally as important that we're helping the child you know, recover from this traumatic experience as this all is unfolding. And also, like you said, for the family as well, whether that's the parent or the caretaker, they're going to need support too. For many of them, this is, you know, uncharted territory and also traumatic for them. So ensuring that they're supported so that they can in turn be, you know, be a support to the child is also critical. But I want to get into some of the data and some numbers here. Is there any data that you can share about the prevalence of child sexual abuse in Brooklyn and then in Bed-Stuy specifically? Yeah, of course. So in Brooklyn, we see around 4,000 children and their families a year. 
um, which is obviously very staggering. And also in Brooklyn, we are, we see the largest number in the whole state um, of, out of all the CACs. Um, so that's obviously very concerning. Um, and then secondarily in Bedside, in the Bedside area, we service around 500 to 600 children and their families a year. So just in Bedside. Um, and the concern here is that the majority of these children are black and brown children. And that's, it's, it's a very common thing that's happening. And I think that there's a lot of taboo around that topic in the community. So one of the things that's important is to just kind of bring awareness to the fact that it is happening. Even if we don't want to think about it happening, it's still something that's very real. Absolutely. And hearing those numbers, that that's devastating. But like you said, it's important that we confront it because I also think that child sexual abuse is one of those issues that people think is not happening in their community. And so just kind of putting the numbers in your face and saying, no, this is happening in your backyard is is really important because the more we turn a blind eye to it, the more it kind of flourishes in the darkness. Um, and you started to kind of allude to some of the links or you started to kind of speak to how certain communities are disproportionately impacted by abuse. And I'm wondering if we can dive a little further into the data and kind of talking about what the data tells us. Are there, for example, any patterns that you've seen with regard to what potentially puts children more at risk for, for child sexual abuse? And thinking about the bed community specifically, it's one of many neighborhoods across the city where we're seeing, you know, rapid displacement and the cost of living shooting up and that breeds housing insecurity and can exacerbate poverty. So are there links between those things and, and you know, children becoming more vulnerable to child sexual abuse? Yeah, I would say that one of the biggest concerns here is that children, like there's delayed reporting a lot of times, like children are not being serviced as immediately, like let's say something has happened, there's a delayed outcry sometimes. Um, and sometimes the caregivers are so stressed and overwhelmed about everything else that they're dealing with that they're not really aware of what's happening in their own like homes. And that's not no fault to them. It's just, unfortunately, the sign of the times, I would say. Um, so you have parents that are, for example, working all the time. And so they have no choice but to ha- find another caregiver for their child. Or they're relying on like their like people that they, they find that they trust to watch their children. Um, and sometimes that puts them at risk. Um, secondarily, like if they're not really spending time with their children, they may not have an opportunity to speak to their children at all about what can make sure ensure their safety or just kind of what's happening in their day to day. So I would say that that's kind of how it would tie in. And unfortunately, like we see in a, a lot of poverty stricken areas, parents don't really, they're working for more than one job. They're working all the time. They're working seven days a week in order to just survive. And it's when they're focused on survival, you don't really have the opportunity to kind of see everything else that's happening. And unfortunately, like parents a lot of times blame themselves for that, um, for not being aware, like not knowing. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of times people will select or like people that cause harm will purposely choose children that they feel like are not being paid attention to in order to victimize them in some capacity. So understanding first of all for parents that it's not their fault if something like this happens um and secondarily that their healing is the healing can be possible and healing is can happen it's just a matter of how you like get access to those resources to ensure that that happens 
Absolutely. And that was so beautifully said. And I think that that really gets to the core of why we started this project to begin with, Um, you know, seeing or framing response to child sexual abuse or preventing child sexual abuse as not just the sole job of the parent, but members of the community as well coming together to protect children. So what's the best way that you think that people in the community who might not be parents, but, you know, are members of the community can play an active role in protecting children and preventing these things from happening? Yeah. So one of the, I think one of the most important things is for children to first of all, know the correct terminology for their body parts and teaching body safety to children is extremely important. Um, Also consent. Children learn a lot just from demonstrating and like observing and like seeing adults model behavior. So teaching about consent and teaching children that it's okay to say no and respecting children's boundaries around this type of, you know, concerns. Um, Another thing is giving them a voice and allowing them to advocate for themselves. If children are feeling uncomfortable, believe them because a lot of times they have, you know, there's something that's happening there that maybe is not necessarily clear. Um, Another thing is teaching them that they won't be in trouble if they feel uncomfortable or if they say no. Um, And letting them know that if they they will never be in trouble if someone has caused them harm in any way. Um, A lot of people that cause harm like to try to, I guess, manipulate in a way telling them that somebody will be in trouble, they'll like harm will be caused. But being a safe adult means not putting that fear in children and just letting them know that it's going to be okay. Absolutely. I think far too often we hear things like the child should know their place, the child should be seen, not heard, don't speak until spoken to. And there's this hierarchy of the, the adult makes the rules, the child just follows, but we need to be more intentional about centering children's voices and allowing them to have a voice and set boundaries and say, no, I don't want to hug this person or I feel uncomfortable around this person, not shutting them down because that just creates an environment for, unfortunately, abuse to to happen in, in the darkness. Yeah, absolutely. And children like being like, like sometimes kids don't necessarily understand, right, that even someone that they see as a safe adult can be the one that causes harm. And that's something that we see very common, that it is someone that they love and trust that has caused them harm in some way. And sometimes people think like, oh, it's just a stranger. We actually don't see that as often as we see the alternative where it's somebody that they love and care about that's in like their home or somebody that is in their family or a friend or, you know, that are the ones that are causing the harm. Um, But most of all, allowing the children to first of all speak because they may not outcry in a way that's expected. They may not say it in in a moment that we're anticipating it. So just kind of being aware of what some of those cues are, but also reporting it immediately as soon as you know. So sometimes that's, like I said, I mentioned earlier, delayed reporting is very common. Um, what happens is that people try to kind of resolve things on their own, on the inside. But what we learn is that that actually perpetuates and kind of keeps the harm from, it keeps the harm happening. Um, and also it potentially allows other children to be victimized as well. Yeah. And I think you, you spoke to something that just triggered another thought, which is that in a lot of black and brown communities, there is this distrust of the police, obviously, given you know the history of, of violence and brutality and, and things like that. And so that might be one of the ways that or that might be one of the things that acts as a barrier to reporting. What would you say? I know you kind of already spoke to this, but to the people who, you know, might be fearful of of involving law enforcement in in cases like this, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say that it's important to acknowledge that 
a lot of strides have been made in over the years. Um, so I think historically, victims or people that are survivors of some type of abuse, when they've reported, maybe historically they haven't received the response that they've necessarily wanted. Um, but just knowing that the people that are in charge of ensuring that like justice happens, they very much do care for children and they do care to ensure that their safety does happen and knowing that they will not be going through this process alone. Like there's people that are here that are specifically present to ensure that they have as comfortable an experience as possible. Understanding that their child won't be talking directly to the detective, won't be talking, like it won't be as intimidating as maybe that one expects. Like some people think, oh, you're gonna, like my child's gonna be interrogated and that's not the case. It's somebody that's a completely neutral party that's just there to just facilitate the child leading a discussion of what's happened. And, and knowing that we have so many people here that are specifically just here just to ensure that they're okay, I think is one of the things that can be most reassuring for some parents. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's definitely helpful in kind of reframing how we think about reporting and, and the, the the need to do it despite the fact that, you know, it might be kind of scary, but ultimately you need to get some help for the child and, and make sure that we can move past this. Um, and lastly here, Catherine, so, you know, we're all in this space fighting to protect children in the community and to prevent this from happening. But this isn't our present reality where child abuse isn't happening. And unfortunately, it's likely a, a long road ahead until we get to that, you know, more just reality. So how can adults, whether it's a parent or a teacher or a librarian, in the case that a child discloses to them, be supportive in their healing journey? First and foremost is to believe them, right? Um, believe that child and believe what they're saying because they're coming to you because they trust you and feel like this is a safe place to share that. Um, also, it's important to understand that trauma impacts everyone in different ways. Trauma can impact how we think and how we feel and how we act. Um, so also noticing those, if there's any changes in behaviors is one of the key things and talking to them about what, what's going on in their lives and listening to them. Um, Another thing is letting them know that they're going to be supported throughout the process. And they, like, even though it is something that's very scary, that they're doing the right thing, that they're doing the, the right thing and saying about what's happening, first of all, so they can keep themselves safe and they could keep others safe, but so that they can ensure that something like this doesn't happen to anyone else. Yeah. And that burden can be, it can feel like it's being a lot placed on the child, but having that connection with that safe adult, with somebody that they love and care for that lets them know that it's gonna be okay is very comforting and allows them to just overcome what's happened. So Catherine, before we wrap up here, what is the best way for people to reach out uh, to Safe Horizon or reach out? I know you mentioned that Safe Horizon has some helplines or hotlines. So what are those for folks who are listening? So Safe Horizon has a 24-hour hotline. The hotline number is 1-800-621-HOPE or 1-800-621-4673. And like I said, that's a 24-hour hotline that's always available. And on our website, www.safehorizon.org, we also have a safe chat feature where someone could just like kind of message or text and it can be a little bit more comfortable for some. Thank you for that, Catherine. That was so perfectly said. And I think the perfect point to end on. So 
Thank you once again, Catherine, for joining me today for this really thoughtful conversation. Really enjoyed, you know, learning from you and hearing your insight. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I really appreciate this conversation and I appreciate the awareness that you're spreading in the community. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And for those listening, you can learn more about the WCCP project on our website at wccpbedsty.org. WCCP is currently running a pledge and share campaign this month because we need people to stand with us. And even though it is uncomfortable, we need people to talk about this important issue. We also want to spread awareness that there are resources out there that can make navigating through this issue a little easier. And we have many on our website. But the pledge is to make a commitment to shine a light on this issue and be an advocate for children. Once again, as a reminder, if you need help, please call 866-F-O-R-L-I-G-H-T or text L-I-G-H-T to 741-741 for free 24-7 confidential services from trained crisis counselors. Thank you so much for joining us in this fight.